This is VLX number 80, Heart of the Earth. We are in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 45. God give you his peace, and nomine patris affiliate spiritu santi. Amen. God, our Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. In nomine patris affiliate spiritu santi. Amen. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. Okay, let's talk briefly about why Jesus will not do miracles on demand. There's three reasons I can come up with. You can probably come up with more, but number one is because he's God. He's not a dog that does tricks on demand. Two, because the Pharisees do not believe and there's nothing that's going to convince them to believe. You might remember that old quote, for those who believe, no proof is necessary. For those who disbelieve, no amount of proof is sufficient. And number three is Christ wants people to come to him out of love not out of power. And this is why he calls them an evil and adulterous generation. Now, adulterous right there is an interesting word because in verse 39, we have this word moichalis. Moichalis means adulterous. Why does Jesus say that adulterous and not just evil? Well, Father Lapide says this, Hence, infidelity and idolatry are often called adultery by Ezekiel in chapter 16 and others. Thus say St. Jerome, St. Chrysostom, Euthemius, along with Theophlact, who says, quote, He calls them an adulterous generation because they forsook God and clave to the devil, end quote. Father Lapide continues, Second, adulterous means false, that is, having degenerated from the faith and character of Abraham, Isaac, and the rest of the patriarchs. For they believed in the Messiah, but these would not acknowledge him when he was present and proving himself by so many miracles to be the Messiah. For the Messiah was the husband of the synagogue of the Jews and is now the spouse of the Christian church, as is plain from Ephesians 5.32. So we've talked about this before. Remember that the Jews alive with Christ at that time, most of the leadership right there were not following in the footsteps of Abraham, Isaac, and Moses as they claimed. They were unbelievers where we know that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses were true believers. Speaking of faithfulness of the hierarchy, if you ask most priests today if they think Jonah was in the belly of a whale for three days, 90% of them will say no, it was an analogy. And I am not exaggerating. I really think it's close to 90%. But then if you ask, 
All the priests alive today, if they think the resurrection was physically real, 90% will say they believe Jesus physically rose. Okay, that's good. Well, both of those need to be up to 100% because that's what the apostles taught and that's what's re- that is what really happened in history. You know, 20 years ago when I was slowly shaking off all this modernism in scripture, because I had essentially been taught the Old Testament was all fables too, and that's a total lie. When I was waking up to this, the inerrancy of scripture, when I was waking up to the inerrancy of scripture, I asked a a good scripture scholar who actually believed, and I asked him if he believed Jonah was really in the stomach of a whale for three days. He looked at me and said, do you think a man can come out of a tomb after three days? And I said, yes. And his point, of course, he didn't have to have me answer anything more. His point was that God can work any miracles that he wants, Old Testament or New Testament. And it's clear today, by the way, that Jesus himself believes, or knows, I should say, Jesus knows Jonah was in the belly of a whale for three days. This isn't fables. This is real miracles. Again, most priests I know would scoff at this. I used to scoff at this. But God gives us the signs we need right when we need them. And you know what? Something happened similar to this. Check this out. Earlier this summer, and I'm going to read from you secular news, not Christian or Catholic news. Many of you probably saw this. The title in the Cape Cod Times was... I was completely inside, lobster diver swallowed by humpback whale off Provincetown. Now remember as I read this, Cape Cod Times is not like the National Enquirer. This is a normal, secular publication. On the 11th of June, 2021, this year, the publication reads, At a little before 8 a.m. on Friday, veteran lobster diver Michael Packard entered the water for his second dive of the day. His vessel, the John Jay, was off Herring Cove Beach, and surrounded by a fleet of boats catching striped bass. The water temperature was a balmy 60 degrees and the visibility about 20 feet. Licensed commercial lobster divers literally pluck lobsters off the sandy bottom, and as Packard, age 56, dove down Friday morning, he saw schools of sand lances and stripers swimming by. The ocean food chain was in full evidence, but about 10 feet from the bottom, Packard suddenly knew what it was truly like to be part of that chain. In something truly biblical, Packard was swallowed whole by a humpback whale. Quote, all of a sudden I felt this huge shove and the next thing I knew it was completely black, end quote. Packard recalled Friday afternoon following his release from Cape Cod Hospital in Hyannis. And if you're watching on YouTube, the picture I have on the screen is of Packard recovering in the hospital after being swallowed whole by a whale. But I see this modern account from this summer as a reminder to us in this unbelieving generation that Jesus really did rise from the dead and Jonah really did spend three days in the belly of the whale. Why else would God send this this story? I'm glad that guy lived, but what a beautiful story um, to remind us uh, that these are not tall tales from the past. Now, I want to look at that next sentence that we have in today's uh, Bible section. We're going to look at every word in Greek. Now, I try to just pick out single words in the Greek normally because it might be a little bit tedious to listen to every word in the Greek. So I won't do this very often. Uh, But I do want you to get not just the denotation, but the connotation too occasionally. So let's look at verse 40. That's where Jesus starts to talk about Jonah being in the belly of the whale for three days. So verse 40, again, we're in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Hosper, just as, gar, for, Ein Jonas, Ein is was, Jonas is the prophet Jonas. Hospergar, Ein Jonas, just as for was Jonah, Entekoilia to Ketus. En is in, Te is the 
Koilia is an interesting word. My Greek Bible here that has the definition for any word that is under 30 times frequency in the whole New Testament gives you the definition for it on that page, and that's right about where my Greek is um, as far as um, the little expertise I have. It defines koilia as body cavity, belly, stomach, womb, uterus, or heart. So we'll often hear this for a pregnant woman, what is in her koilia. It's just kind of this whole general area of your belly. I remember this because koilia reminds me of like coiled together intestines. So Jonah was in the belly or the koilia, two, two is of the, and then ketus. Let's see what it says here. Ketus is one of those words that is under 30 times frequency in the New Testament. And it says sea monster. That's how they define it in the Zondervan book I have. So let's, let's put this together. Koilia to ketus, that's the coiled up, to help me remember connotation-wise, coiled up intestines of a sea monster. Just to give you a connotation, koilia can mean belly or any of those other words I just gave you. How long? It says, tres hemeris kai tres nuktas. Tres hemeris is three days, kai is and, and then tres nuktas, three nights. You can kind of hear a little bit of our night in nuktas. And then, of course, trace is the exact same word that we have in Spanish or Portuguese for three. But you really see it bolded out in the Greek here, maybe partly because it literally is bold since it's quoting the Old Testament. Trace hemeris kai trace nuktas, three days and three nights. Jesus is asserting that is literally how long Jonah spent in the belly of the whale. And it's literally how long he will, according to Jewish counting at that time, would be in the heart of the earth. Okay, next couple lines here. Hostus eistai is... Just as it will be, hohuios to anthropo. That's an interesting term. Hohuios to anthropo is the son of man. Anthropo should uh, kick off some uh, reminders in your brain. This is where we get the word um, and anthropology, study of man. Now in Hebrew, this is going to be bar adam. If you were hearing Jesus speak in Aramaic, I believe the words here would be bar adam. Isn't this interesting that Jesus is both the son of Adam and the father of Adam since he's the creator of him? And so he is saying that he, he, and he often calls himself the son of man, bar Adam out of humility. He could point to his divinity, but he's pointing to the fact that the son of man, the bar Adam, will also spend three days. And here's where it comes in, N in, te cardia tes geis. Cardia is where we get the word cardiac, and then tes is of the, and then geis is an interesting word. Geis means earth or dirt. That's why I call this VLX today, VLX 80, heart of the earth. It could also be heart of the dirt. Do you ever think of Jesus spending three days in the heart of the dirt or the heart of the earth? That's where he was between Good Friday and Easter Sunday was the heart of the earth or the heart of the dirt. That's exactly what it is. Tecardia, tes geis. And then he uses the exact same words there. Tres hemeris, kai tres nuktas. Three days and three nights. So I read all this, not to show off, but just to, so you can kind of get like a little bit of the connotation with the denotation and really how literal this is that both Jonah and Jesus were in darkness until coming out. Okay, and then Jesus talks about the mission of Jonah. If you remember, Jonah didn't want that mission, but the Ninevites did end up converting, at least temporarily. So Christ says today, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, does that mean that the Ninevites were saved? This is an important question we have to ask. Remember that anyone saved in the Old Testament times was saved by Christ since the cross is retroactive. But 
they had to live in the limbo of the fathers until Holy Saturday. Now, this doesn't guarantee necessarily that the Ninevites were saved. You might be surprised at that, but I'm going to read you from the Church Fathers, namely Father Lapide. Here's, he says, It does not follow from this that the Ninevites were saved, for shortly afterwards they returned to their sins like a dog to his vomit. Hence with their king, Sardanapalu, they were subdued and subjugated by Arbatsis Medus. After Jonas, Nahum was sent to the Ninevites, who castigated them for backsliding and threatened them with destruction by the Chaldeans. And in fact, they were destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Chaldeans. So remember, in the final judgment, the saved judge the nations, but the damned will rise against the damned too, but in hell, and then nobody can touch the elect. That's why you got to get your family to heaven. Now, one of the most mysterious people in the Old Testament and New Testament today is the Queen of the South. Who is this Queen of the South? Today, Christ says, The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So who was the Queen of the South? Well, you can find her in the Old Testament, but you can also find her in secular history. Father Lapide says, but I maintain that Eseb is Ethiopian for the south, as Ethiopians at Rome have assured me. This is the queen of Saba, or Sheba, which is south of Judea, as found in 3 Kings 10. Saba is a country and has two meanings. One Saba was in nearby Arabia, and the other in remote Ethiopia, the capital of which was afterward called Mero by Cambyses, after the name of his sister. This queen is thought by many to have come from the Ethiopian rather than the Arabian Saba because the Ethiopian Saba was further off and because Josephus calls her queen of Ethiopia and Egypt. Therefore, afterward, the knowledge of scripture and of the true God of the Hebrews remained among the Ethiopians. From among them, there came to Jerusalem to worship the God of the Hebrews, a eunuch of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians in chapter 8 of Acts of the Apostles. For the Ethiopian tradition is that the queen of Saba was married to Solomon, by whom she had a son, from whom are descended the Abyssinian kings who are now called Pretijanes. The queen of Saba believed Solomon, but the Jews do not want to believe me. This is Lapide speaking as Christ. The queen of Saba believed Solomon, but the Jews do not want to believe me, who am far greater and wiser than Solomon because I am their Messiah and the Son of God. Therefore, this queen, by her action, will condemn the hard-heartedness and incredulity of the Jews on the day of judgment. This woman, he says, speaking of Franz Lucas, this woman was a Gentile, not brought up in God's discipline, but immersed in the business of a great empire. Yet she was attracted by the fame of Solomon's wisdom and undertook a most difficult journey from the remotest parts of the earth to Jerusalem that she might make trial of his wisdom. The wisdom she wondered at above measure and received Solomon's counsel, although he only discoursed concerning earthly and lowly things. But the Jews, the scholars of the divine law and steeped in sacred scripture, would not receive Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, in whom are hid all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge, the only one who could teach them about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven and of eternal salvation, which had been hid from ages and generations and manifest the true wisdom of God when he offered himself to them and asked and invited them to come to him. Indeed, they altogether rejected him. 
although he gave them the most wonderful sign of the resurrection, when he had communicated and bestowed that wisdom upon those who believed in him and obeyed him. How much, therefore, did the queen of Saba excel the Jews? And with what justice, with what power will she in the day of judgment rebuke them to their face for their obstinate ingratitude, unbelief, and disobedience to Christ? This example of the queen of Saba, and even more so that of the Ninevites, shows plainly that on the day of judgment... Whoever has neglected or spurned the great benefits and graces which he has received from God will be bitterly chastised by Christ the Judge. Therefore let priests, religious, and others who are abundantly supplied with God's grace take heed that they use it rightly and diligently. For otherwise, the more they have received, the more severely will they be punished. Yea, in the day of judgment, laymen will scoff at them, even as heathens and Turks will revile bad Christians, because if they had had their graces they would have led lives far more religious and holy than theirs. So remember, it's not too much for Christ to claim he is greater than all these people before him, both in the Old Testament and secular history. I mean, think how narcissistic it would be if it weren't true for Christ to say in himself, there's something greater here than both Jonah and Solomon. He would not be a great teacher, as some people say, but a narcissist. But, ah, but if Christ is God, then he can and should claim that he's greater than Jonah and Solomon. In fact, let's bring in secular history a little bit. Let's mention Buddha, who was born 600 years before Christ. Did you know in one talk by Archbishop Fulton Sheen, Fulton Sheen once claimed that Buddha prophesied that the true light would enter the world in 600 years and his name would be love. Archbishop Fulton Sheen mentions a couple other pagan prophecies of Christ, also from before when Christ was born. Fulton Sheen writes this, quote, Cicero, after recounting the sayings of the ancient oracles and the sibyls about a king whom we must recognize to be saved, asked in expectation, to what man and to what period of time do these predictions point? The fourth eclogue of Virgil recounted the same ancient tradition and spoke of a chaste woman smiling on her infant boy with whom the Iron Age would pass away. Suetonius quoted a contemporary author to the effect that the Romans were so fearful about a king who would rule the world that they ordered all children born that year to be killed, an order that was not fulfilled except by Herod. Not only were the Jews expecting the birth of a great king, a wise man, and a savior, but Plato and Socrates also spoke of the Logos and the universal wise man yet to come. Confucius spoke of the saint, the sibyls of a universal king, and the Greek dramatist of a savior and redeemer to unloose man from the primal eldest curse. All these were on the Gentile side of the expectation, writes Fulton Sheen. And let's talk about this demon going after the windswept house now. Christ says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Okay, real quick note there. You know, first, demons like dry areas, also translated waterless today. And that's one reason why the desert fathers and the desert mothers went into the desert, to conquer demons with life. Demons want to be in these dry places of death, and the Desert Fathers brought life, supernatural life, even to the desert. Christ conquers even there through his church. Okay, but let's go back to today's parable. We have a demon get kicked out and then come back with seven of his friends. Why? Because this exercised person from which it exited, or nation, 
was negligent. Negligent is the key here. The first people this refers to is the Jews. How do we know that? Because Christ is talking about prophets like Jonah and then talks about his current Pharisees by the term this generation. He's calling them this generation. And then he finishes how a nation or a person that kicked out one demon but is negligent will have seven more demons. He says, so also will it be with this evil generation. Now, I also have to think of Catholics. You know, we've had this phrase in the Catholic Church in Latin for a long time, corruptio optimi pessima. Corruptio optimi pessima means the corruption of the best becomes the worst. This is where mental prayer and exorcism dovetail. A friend of mine who does major exorcism says that demons come against your mind, but that 15 minutes of meditation, 15 minutes of meditation a day is protection against these demons. Why? Because demons, they want to change how we think. And if you do mental prayer or meditation, your mind will be filled with something. There's a shield. There's an iron dome around your brain when you do meditation. And did you notice again, that's the only reason these demons move in? Because there's a vacuum. See, we see so much of spiritual warfare as just kind of clean up jobs and defense and all this stuff. Mental prayer is your offensive against demons. Because elements of nature abhor a vacuum, but so also elements of preternature abhor a vacuum. In fact, I have a friend who does minor exorcisms, and if I remember correctly, his whole inventory page for you to get ready, he makes you do 30, 30 days of rosary. Um, I think he's got 15 minutes of prayer every day. See, he won't even see you for minor exorcism or deliverance ministry unless you're taking care of yourself, unless you're taking care of your brain with mental prayer in the first place. So you have to understand, again, as I said before, this mental prayer stuff, this isn't your gift to God. This is God's gift to you. Okay, now let's talk about the imaginative way of prayer. I mentioned the difference between meditation and contemplation recently, and one of the only few times I personally was ever raised to pure contemplation was at the tomb of the resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem itself. The reason I know this wasn't forced by my brain or just forced by a ton of coffee or something is because I had expected consolation elsewhere on this 10-day pilgrimage, and I didn't really get any, so I wasn't looking for consolation by this point. Now, I normally don't journal, and when I do, I don't put it on my blog. But this, this experience that I had about 12 years ago, uh, maybe 15 years ago, it made me absolutely sure Christ rose. I already knew he, he rose in my mind, but sometimes it's good to have these experiences in our heart. Um, and w what happened to me in the tomb of the Holy Sepulchre made me as sure as a nose on my face. Christ rose, and he rose right there. And I decided a few years ago to put this journal experience on my blog, even though I usually don't journal and I usually don't put my journal on in my blog. And I'm going to read that to you just to show you how real meditation and contemplation can be. Um, but before I do that, my suggestion for your mental prayer today is to skip today's passage and meditate instead on your favorite account of the resurrection, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Or maybe I should say, because Jesus implies today in Matthew 12 that the greatest miracle and the only one in some sense that you need is the resurrection, is the resurrection, I think we really should meditate more and more on the passion and the resurrection. The resurrection, especially as things get so dark in the world. Why do we meditate on the resurrection when, when we need this as things get dark? Well, we must know that Christ has conquered not only death and sin, but in some sense, all of history with his resurrection. The resurrection truly happened in history. And it's a cameo, this bellwether of the final judgment when everybody gets their bodies back too. Okay, so here's what happened to me from my journal. And again, this is the most powerful experience in my prayer I've ever had. It's not to brag or show you how many consolations I get because I really get pretty few actually in prayer. I don't get a lot of consolations. But occasionally we're given an experience so real that there's no doubting it. 
Okay, so I wrote on my journal and my blog, in 2007, I went to the Holy Land with bracket seminary professor and 40 others. Bracket seminary professor couldn't even look at me or bear the sound of me talking. One woman on our group started a fight with me for arguing against the modernism of our Palestinian tour group leader. I expected all kinds of grace at the foot of Calvary and felt nothing. So one night, I snuck away to the same church but a different location, the Holy Sepulchre, but this time I went to the tomb where Jesus rose. Normally, the lines are so long that each person only gets 30 seconds, since only two people fit in there at a time. But I happened to show up 30 minutes before they were closing, so almost everyone was ushered out by this point. Somehow, I was able to get into that tomb for 20 minutes. I was neither seen nor sneaky, but I just went in, alone. Within 10 minutes, I can say that the power of God I felt in there was greater than my ordination day a year later. God literally changed the orientation or size or brightness of my soul or something in there that day, making me as sure as the nose of my face, not only that Jesus rose from the dead, but that he rose there, right there. And I felt the power of the resurrection as the most powerful thing in my life. My soul changed that day, like when Jesus breathed on the apostles after his resurrection to turn them from cowards into those inebriated with the Holy Spirit. I left there just that way, so on fire that even my Muslim barber was fascinated by my on-fire evangelization. My friend later saw me and said I was walking on air and looked different as I returned to the hotel that night. Objectively, besides my baptism and ordination, it had to have been the single greatest supernatural grace that God had ever given me, but subjectively, it was definitely the greatest gift I've ever received. Please say an Our Father for me, et benedictio Dei omnipotentis, Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti, descende super vos et maniat semper. Amen.